from the book of John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to him to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove And it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. morning. We are glad you're here. Uh, happy 4th of July. Our kids can be dismissed. There's programming down the hall for them. And uh, to the rest of you, for over 50 years, there was a guy named Oswald Lawrence, who was the voice of the underground transit system in London. And every time the subway doors opened, his message was played. It was a very simple message, but a very needed safety announcement, warning passengers to mind the gap. In other words, make sure that you step over the space between the train and the landing. Mind the gap. And when the man behind the voice, Oswald, passed away, his widow Margaret was heartbroken. She was alone, as you can imagine. She missed her husband. She 
she loved his zest for life, and, and so she got an idea. She, she went down to the subway station that was nearest where they lived, and she just, she just sat on the platform on a bench, and with every stopping train, she got to hear her husband's voice again. It just said, mind the gap, but it was enough to get her through, and, and so that became routine for her. She'd get to Missing Oswald and off to the train station she would go and she would sit and she would hear his voice and it would always help. And over and over uh, to the train station she would go. About five years into this routine, one day she went to the train station to hear her husband's voice and she sat down and realized that her vo- his voice was gone. Another voice was coming over the speakers, and it turns out that the London uh, underground officials decided to modernize their systems, and in the process, they had replaced Oswald's voice with an electronic recording. Now, Margaret was sad about that and distressed, but she thought there's, there's another way, there's still a way, so she went down to the transit headquarters and requested a copy of her husband's recording so she could listen to it at home. And when the London Underground staff learned who she was and about her visits to the station to hear his voice, they were so moved by that story that they bypassed all of the red tape, they searched through the archives, and they found Oswald's recording, and they had it digitized just for Margaret so she could take it home. But it was also decided that at that particular stop where she would go and hear his voice, it was also decided that they would replace the new with the old and continue to play his recording just at that one stop for Margaret. And so today, if you find yourself at the embankment station on the northern line of the London Underground, you will hear the 1950 recording of Oswald Lawrence's voice, and so will his wife. We're beginning a new series today, and it is wild, I'll tell you. It really is. That's not just my uh, assessment of what's coming. It's also the name of the series. Uh, VBS is themed wildlife. And every year before VBS, we have this uh, tradition where we kind of take the lessons that our kids will learn at VBS and we look at them ourselves on Sunday mornings leading up to VBS. And so this year's theme is wildlife. And I'm sure that at our VBS, there will be all kinds of wildlife going on, wild animals and wild fires and wild flowers, maybe a wild card. And certainly at VBS, there will be a wild child or two. That's how that works. Uh, This morning, uh, we're going to take a look at scripture at a wild man in scripture. His name is John the Baptist. And we're going to learn what our kids will learn. It's just this, that that we have a story to tell. And so the one question that I want to tackle today is who was John? The, the text is from the Gospel of John. It's written by John, who is the disciple of Jesus. And John, who is the disciple of Jesus, mentions this other John. He says that this other John was sent from God to give witness and testimony about the light coming into the world. And and as you read, you kind of quickly get the idea that this light that he's talking about is the person of Jesus Christ. And so this guy, John, that the disciple John writes about is one who is telling people about the coming of Jesus. And other than that, John, the disciple, doesn't give us much of a description about what this John is like. He's just someone that tells about the coming of Jesus. But we can fill in the gaps pretty quickly 
with some of the other Gospels. If we, if we jump over to Mark, we get a very visual picture of what this other John was like. Mark says that John wore clothing made of camel's hair. Now, that's an important detail because it was kind of robe that was only worn by the very poorest of people. And Mark says also that he wore a leather belt. Now, that's important because people in that day made fashion statements with their belts. Wearing the right belt was definitely uh, the thing to do. It was like us wearing the right kind of shoes, okay? But John's belt was simply a thin leather strip. He was definitely not making a fashion statement with it. And then also, Mark takes the time to tell us this, that John ate some peculiar things. John ate uh, locusts and wild honey. His idea of eating out was to catch a few grasshoppers and then visit the local beehive for dessert. And again, all of those food items were things that were consumed only by the very poorest of people. And so Mark says that this John, who is dressed in this way, comes proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Of sin. It amounted to a call to, for the people to separate themselves from the sinful culture of the time, to repent and to turn to God. That's what repent means, just to turn around, to turn to God and live a life focused on God. There's one more detail that Mark points out, and that's where John located himself. He says he was out in the wilderness, wilderness preaching like this. He was out in the wild, right? And wilderness isn't the best translation because we, we hear wilderness, and one of the things that we think of is forest. And there's life all over the forest. The forest is filled with provision. People live in the forest all the time. But actually, the word is not that. It's not wilderness. The word is desert. The word means a place where nothing grows, where nothing lives, where nothing is there to sustain life. And so out in the desert, John is calling the people of Israel to repentance, to meet God. Why does he choose the desert? It's this, because a desert is a place where you cannot stay alive without outside help. And John's, John's message is, you can't stay alive without God. And if you're an Israelite and you have in your history books that your ancestors spent 40 years in the wilderness, uh, in, the, in the desert where the water dries, dried up, but God gave them water out of a rock, in the desert where the bread ran out, but God gave them bread from heaven in the desert with nothing to kill and eat, but God gives them meat from the sky. When you have that in your history book, in the desert, God is not an add-on. That's what you know. He's not an, a, a supplement. He's not just another thing you add to your life. God is the only thing when you're in the desert. And all of this that John is doing, the dress and the food and the place, it's all strategic. John brings people to a place where they have no choice but to see their sin and rebellion, to see that it's all around them, that it's living and breathing in front of them in the clothes and in the diet of the poor that they've neglected. John didn't just preach a message. John was the message. John was his own object lesson. And to John, commentators tell us that over 300,000 people, more than likely, would have went 
Over 300,000 people would have gone out into the desert during John's ministry to hear him preach. Now, if we jump back to the Gospel of John in our text, we see that the Pharisees in Jerusalem hear about John in, in the desert and, and his preaching and the crowds, and they're drawing all kinds of crowds, and there's really high ticket prices. You can't really get a ticket, not really. And, and they wondered what in the world is going on uh, out in the desert, and so they sent their own guys to investigate. And so the priests and the Levites here in the text are on the assignment. They're going to get the story about what John is up to. And so they go out to John, and they ask the same question that we're entertaining today. John, who are you? And mostly John responds by telling them who he is not. He says, I am not the Christ. He says, I am not the Messiah that you're looking for. Okay. Well, are you Elijah? I mean, you're certainly dressed like Elijah. You're kind of acting like Elijah. And we've gotten word that actually some people are calling you Elijah. A little side note here. There's actually a text in Malachi that gives a certain expectation among Israelites that one day someone like Elijah would come on the scene, that God would send someone like Elijah, like Elijah 2.0, and they're thinking, maybe John is this guy, but again, John says, no, I'm not Elijah 2.0. Then finally, they say, are you a prophet? And again, they're, they're just going down their checklist, making sure that no stone is left unturned. In Deuteronomy, there is another text in which Moses promises that a prophet will come who will be like him. Maybe John isn't the Messiah, maybe he's not Elijah, but maybe he's the guy Moses was talking about. John still says, nope, I'm not that guy. Well, then who are you? And they're getting frustrated by now. They actually say, give us something. Because we came out here, we're on assignment, man. We have to report to the people. We can't go back empty-handed. Who are you? Now, the main reason that they're so worried about getting an answer to who John is has to do with what John was doing out in the desert. All of these people are coming to him, and John calls them to repent and also to be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. And it was the repenting and it was the baptizing that, that made the religious establishment nervous. Why are you doing this? Who are you to do this? What gives you the authority to do this? In other words, John, you didn't go to school. John, you don't have ordination papers. Who are you to do this? When the people repented, John called them to be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. And in our main text, John says several things about this baptism of his. In verse 26, he says, I baptize with water. In verse 31, he says, I came baptizing with water. And then he gives even a more of an exclamation point in verse 33. He says, he who sent me to baptize with water. So he's claiming that God himself ordained that he do this baptizing thing, and that's the authority by which he baptizes. The word baptize is a word we don't have in English. It's just a Greek word that we've plucked from the Greek language, just baptize. It, it means to dip under. It means to plunge under. And so baptize with, to baptize with water is to, to dip under, to, to plunge under, or to immerse somebody completely under the water, and that's what John is doing, and what he's doing is he's attaching to it the forgiveness of sin. 
And because John is baptizing, he got another descriptor to tack on to his name. John came to be known as John the Baptist. And John's baptism is a big, big deal. It was radical for the time. Judaism had within it certain immersions and washings that, that people had to go through to be clean. For example, Jews knew that in order to worship God in the temple, one of the things that they had to do was to wash their hands. Even in the tabernacle, there was a big bowl of water called the labor, and it was for cleansing yourself before you entered the sanctuary. And also familiar to all of these Jewish people was the washing of Gentiles. Let's say you're not a Jew and you want to go into the tabernacle or into the temple to worship, you need extra cleaning because you're not a Jew. If you were not a Jew and wanted to go into the tabernacle, you not only had to wash your hands, but also you had to wash your whole body. They were required to fully immerse themselves because they're Gentiles. They're really unclean and really far from God. And those kind of washings have been done for centuries. And, and so Jews are familiar with that. But what makes John's washing, his baptism, especially earth-shattering, is the way that it was done. For centuries, if you're a Jew and you need cleansing to worship, you clean yourself. You wash your own hands. For centuries, if you're a Gentile and you want to worship God, you immerse yourself to be clean. Always. You did it yourself. But what John is doing is he's calling people out into the desert where God is the only thing. And he says for the first time in history, if you want God, if you want to be clean before him, then I have to baptize you. All of you. It doesn't matter who you are. I have to baptize you. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, Jewish person or a Gentile person. It doesn't matter if you're a professor or a priest or a prostitute. It doesn't matter who you are. I have to baptize you. You're all going to have to receive forgiveness from someone else, from me, from the baptism that I will perform. You will have your sins forgiven, not by anything that you do, but at the hands of someone else. And it was a preparation that's what John is doing for somebody else that will come. John says it this way, I'm going to have to baptize you and I'll use water and it will forgive you, but it will be a temporary forgiveness. Later on, somebody else is going to come that will baptize you not with just with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and his forgiveness won't be temporary. It will be lasting. It will be eternal. And John's radical idea that he preaches is this. Here's the message for the day. You need help, and you cannot help yourself. You need salvation, but you cannot save yourself. Salvation has to come from outside. Salvation has to come from someone else, and the place it will come is the person that will come. He will make a way for you to be saved because his baptism will be with the Holy Spirit, and this man who is to come, well, first, John says, he's greater than me. He's greater than me. After, man, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. In the Jewish mind, it was always the older person. It was always the, the first person on the scene. Uh, we would say it this way in our day, the founder. It's always the founder who has more authority. You had more authority just because you were older. And John is saying, even though he's coming after me, you may think I may be greater than him because I was around first, I'm the founder here, but it's not true. Don't believe it. 
I wasn't around before him. And in fact, neither were you. He's been around since creation. He's older than you and me put together. So he's the one who has all the authority. That's who's coming. Number two, he's so much beyond me that I can't even untie his sandals. Sandals were a disgusting thing in that day because it was a hot, dusty culture. That's kind of what my wife gets to live with every day too. You're welcome. Every day, sandals are worn all day long. And at night, it was a pretty foul thing to take off your sandals. And taking your own off was bad enough. So to have someone else's sandals, to take them off was unthinkably degrading and humiliating. And such a, because it was such a demeaning thing, uh, there were actually laws around sandals, if you can imagine that. Here's one of them. You could never make a Jewish servant take, take your sandals off. If you were a Jewish person, it was too degrading. It was considered too demeaning for a fellow, fellow Jewish person to do it. I mean, if you have a Gentile dog as a servant, then fine. You can make them do it, but not a Jewish person. It's too demeaning for someone to do who is also part of God's family. Here's the second law around sandals that rabbis were forbidden from requiring students to take off their sandals. If you were a a student following around and serving a rabbi and listening and, and were a disciple, you had to do just about anything that they asked. But the one thing that even a rabbi could not ask his student to do was to remove his sandals. Why? Because they're disciples, they're not slaves. And so John says, this one who is coming, I'm not worthy enough to even untie his sandals. And with everything we just discussed in hand, I want you to listen to what John is really saying. He's saying, I'm not worthy enough to put myself even in a position to be demeaned or humiliated by this one who is to come. It means that this is no regular rabbi coming down the line. This is no regular king. He's so far above you and me that the pecking order is shattered. He's so high in comparison to you and me that I'm below the lowest because he's above the highest. And he's coming to help because you can't help yourself. And he's the only one who can help because he's the son of God. These Levites and priests are exasperated by this time. John, you keep talking about this. You you keep talking about repentance and baptism and the Son of God. We've been through this. What gives you the right? What gives you the authority? How can you talk like this? Tell us who you are. We kind of need to get to the end of the sermon at some point, and so we should probably answer that question. He does give them an answer. He says... Plainly, it's easy to miss, but he does tell them exactly who he is. Look at verse 23. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. That's all we need to latch on to today, and we'll get it. John says, I am the voice. I'm a voice filled with joy, filled with enthusiasm and zeal for God, a voice telling you to repent commanding you to be baptized for the forgiveness of sin, telling you that you need help 
and that you cannot help yourself, and I'm this voice, and I cannot help but be this voice because of what I've seen. Verse 29 tells us what that is. John says, behold. It's a, it's a little three-letter word that means to know. Behold means, I know it. Do you know it? Behold means, I see it. Do you see it? Surely you see it too. Behold means, I get it. Do you get it? That's what behold means. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he says this line, it's because he sees Jesus walking his way, almost like he's, he's pointing Jesus out. Look, it's Jesus. I see him. Do you see him? It's the Messiah come from God. He's the one who is greater than me. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Will you let me do just one more today, and then we'll be done? Why a Lamb of God? There's, there's little doubt among commentators that when John sees Jesus, and he points him out, and he says, behold the Lamb of God, that what he has in mind is the Passover lamb from the history of the Jewish people. The story goes like this. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and so a deliverer named Moses goes into Egypt, and he goes to Pharaoh, and he says, God says, let my people go, and the Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to do that, and so God sends plague. He sends plague after plague, and it doesn't matter what plague God sends, Pharaoh still won't give up God's people and let them go. And so finally, God sends one final plague to top all of the other plagues. He says, after this one, Pharaoh will be crushed, and he will let my people go. The final plague was this, that the angel of death would be sent throughout Egypt to kill every firstborn in every home. Now, every Every child is valuable beyond measure. But in that day, the oldest son, the firstborn, was everything. The oldest son was the one who would carry on the family name, carry on the family business, carry on the family legacy. And so to send a plague to strike the firstborn was to dash the hopes of every family in Egypt. It was the most horrible judgment that, that one could imagine. And, and God says to Pharaoh, that's what I'm going to do. Because of your oppression, because of your rebellion of my people, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge your country and your nation of Egypt. I'm going to send my angel of death through your land, and every firstborn will be killed. Now, it's important to remember that as God does this, His own people are also living in Egypt. And to His own people, God said, I don't want you to forget that sin is a debt. I don't want you to forget that you're sinners too, and you're not going to escape the angel of death just because of who you are. You won't escape the angel of death just because you think you're better than the Egyptians. You won't escape the angel of death just because you're huddled together in the same place. It does not work that way. You need help. You cannot help yourselves, and so I will help you. The way through the judgment is this. I want you to get a lamb, and I want you to kill that lamb, and I want you to eat it. I want you to celebrate that I'm your God, that I'm your helper. And then I want you to take the blood from that same lamb, and I want you to go to your front door, and I want you to paint the blood on your door frame. 
And when the angel of death passes through the land, he will see the blood on your door and he will pass over your house and you will not lose your firstborn. The blood will save you from the judgment of death. And so that's what they did. The Jewish people all got together. They all sacrificed a lamb, each family. They had a feast of it, and then they used that blood from that lamb to paint their doorposts. And when the angel of death came in that night, he passed over the houses that had the blood of the lamb on the doors, and the Israelites lived while all of the Egyptians lost their firstborns. And Egypt was so crushed that Pharaoh said, let them go. And every year, Year after year after year, they would celebrate what God had done. They called it the Passover feast. And a lamb was slain to commemorate the Passover and to remember the night that Israel did not have to pay for their sins. And that's what John has in mind as he points his finger and says, there he is. There he is, the lamb of God. I get it. I see it. Do you get it? Do you see it? A little animal, a little animal, a little lamb could never truly take away our sin and deliver us from death. Maybe it could for a night, but it can't do that forever. But here he is. Here he is, God's own son, Jesus, by his blood. He will take away the sins, not just of the Jewish people. He will take away the sins of the world because he is the lamb of God. And the rest of the story is that Jesus shed his blood to pay for sin. That's what John writes in his gospel. He starts it this way, and he points out the Lamb of God. And then when we get to the end, he tells us that Jesus was the Lamb of God. John writes that when Jesus was crucified on the cross, it was during Passover. In fact, John says that while Jesus is hanging on the cross, painting his blood over our sin, at that very hour that the Passover lambs, to celebrate the Passover, were being put to death in the temple. We also read that there were other men crucified with Jesus, and the soldiers came around, and they broke the legs of those other men to speed up their death. But John tells us that the soldiers, when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs. Why does that matter? Because Exodus 12 says that no bones of the Passover lamb should be broken. The reason we can pass through the valley of the shadow of death is because Jesus is our Passover lamb. Whether you're the firstborn or not, you can live because God will offer up his firstborn on your behalf. Who is John the Baptist? He's just a voice. A voice telling us that we need help. A voice telling us that we cannot help ourselves. A voice telling us that the only one who can help is the man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who has come to save the world. And the VBS lesson to our kids is just this. Just like wild old John the Baptist was a voice, you can be a voice too. Let me give you two quick takeaways today. Number one, be a voice for yourself. A great preacher says it this way, that every one of us, every day, who are following Jesus, need to preach to our own heart. Be a voice to your own, own soul. And here's what you say. 
you say exactly what John the voice said to the people who came out to see him in the desert. He said this, you need help. You cannot help yourself. Jesus is the only one who can help you. That's what you preach to yourself. That's the sermon that you preach to yourself every day. Be a voice to yourself. And then, when you're a voice to yourself, now you can be a voice to others. Go and share the story of Jesus with somebody else, the Passover lamb with somebody else. Preach to the people around you. And you might say, what in the world do I preach to people? What, what sermon do I preach? Guess what? The same one. It's the same sermon. You need help. You can't help yourself. Jesus is the only one who can help you. This last week on Thursday morning, um, out in the foyer, a bunch of our third and fourth graders were getting packed up and ready to drive to Camp Saokomo, and Paul uh, was in front of them, and he was giving them and the parents some last-minute instructions, and you can remember how hot it was uh, the middle of this, this last week, and he talked about how hot it would be at camp, and that, that we need to drink a lot of water, right? We need to use a lot of sunscreen so that we can stay healthy because if we, if we, if we don't stay healthy, we, we don't feel good. And then, and then, you know, camp is not a good experience. And he wrapped up all of those instructions with this. He says, but this is the most important instruction I can give you. Paul said this, the most important instruction for camp is to let Jesus speak to your heart. That's it. And parents who didn't go to camp this week and, and friends who didn't go to CIY this week, can we take that same instruction today? The most important thing right now in your life is to let Jesus, the Lamb of God, speak to your heart. So do what you have to do. Go find that spot, that place, that state of being, that scripture, that prayer, that song, that hymn, that train station. Go find it. Go where you know the voice of the one who loves you most, Jesus, will be. And would you sit there? And would you listen and be reminded of his love for you that he would sacrifice his life? It's only after you hear the voice that you can be the voice. God, I want you to thank you for the voice of John who points us to Jesus, the only one who can help us. God, we repent today. God, today we remember our baptism where you did your saving work in our lives through Jesus, the lamb who paid for our sins with his blood and took them away. God, as we remember May that motivate us to now be the voice that we've heard. And it's in the name of the Lamb, Jesus, that we pray and everybody says.